0: Take your Bible, turn to 2 Thessalonians, would you? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in the Word of God, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in the Scripture. And again, I want to thank the Lord for the good work that He's doing here, and a great blessing to be here and be a part of these services. I want to mention that there are some prayer cards on the table out here to your right, and I hope you'll grab a prayer card and pray for us, and pray that God would use us, that He'd help us to keep our eyes on Him and keep, uh, keep, keep walking with the Lord. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where I'd like to start. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tonight. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. Father, thank You for the privilege that is ours to open up the Bible Thank you, Lord Jesus, for each person that is gathered in this place. What a blessing to see each one here. And Lord, night after night to see them come hungry, to hear the word of God and to then heed it. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give an extra special blessing to those who've made that effort. Now, Lord, would you please calm our hearts, whatever has happened in our hearts today and in our lives. I pray that we would set that to the side and focus now intently upon your word. I pray that we would come to your word knowing that it is enough And I pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak to us even in in the midst of our circumstance, and Lord, show us exactly what you want us to see from the Word of God. And Lord Jesus, we'll thank you and praise you for what you do, because we ask this in your wonderful, wonderful name, amen. If I want to know the events of the future or the truth about tomorrow, where do I go? Some would have you believe if you want to know the truth about tomorrow, then you need to open the local horoscope section of the newspaper or your newspaper site and find your sign and match it with what's going on and you'll know the truth about tomorrow. Uh, If you ask some people, they'll tell you if you want to know the truth about tomorrow, then what you need to do is you need to uh, go down to the palm reader and ask the palm reader to upturn your palm and look at all the scars and cracks and crevices and wrinkles and calluses and from all that tangled mess be able to discern something about the future. Others would have you believe if you want to know the truth about tomorrow, what you need to do is, is you need to um, go to the local psychic reader and let her tell you the truth about tomorrow. Uh, uh, several years ago, I read that there were nine psychic readers that were in Philadelphia, in the greater Philadelphia area, that were shut down by the federal government for fraudulent activity. And the thing that shocked me most about it was they didn't see it coming. But anyway, uh, w- w- where do you go if you want to know the truth about tomorrow? Where do you go if you want to know the truth about tomorrow? Some would tell you that if you want to know the truth about tomorrow, you need to get a Ouija board, ask it a few direct questions, wait for its yes or no answer, and you'll know what you need to about the future. Some would even have you stoop to go to the local Chinese restaurant and get a little bite of declawed cat's paw, and at the end of your meal, uh, get... get a. Uh, fortune cookie and open it up and pull out your fortune and uh, you'll know the future. Now I can tell you I've tried that last one and it's uh, not always foolproof. Uh, You might get uh, an ancient Chinese proverb but not a fortune, you might get a lottery number, which is no good to a Baptist preacher, so I can tell you that last one isn't foolproof. But where do you go if you want to know the truth about tomorrow? I will tell you if you try any of the above-mentioned means, except the last one, not only will you come to a dead-end street, but you'll be in direct violation of the Word of God. You know, I was talking to someone just recently, and I said, you know, when I was growing up, there would be preachers that would come in, and they would literally pull the wool off and pull the mask off of satanic activity that was going on and that was being enjoyed and indulged in, sometimes naively, by God's people. I was preaching recently out in Oregon, and I began to preach against anime. And uh, it was stunning to me to hear the responses. Many of the young people were involved in anime. Parents, if your children are involved in anime, they are opening themselves up to portals of demons and demonic influence and demonic oppression. You need to steer clear of all that. Here in America, it's Seems to have kind of a mask, and it needs to seems to have some kind of, of of niceness and and cuteness about it. But you go over into the Orient. I've been in Japan, and it's full on wicked, full on demonic. It is rooted in demonic activity, and you should steer clear of it. But if you want to know the truth about tomorrow, then you need to open the pages of the sacred text, and you will find everything you need to know about the future. If it's not in the Bible, then you don't need to know it. But if it is in the Bible, not only do you need to know it, but you need to apply it to your life. And so tonight, I want us to open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want us to look uh, from this passage on the subject, the facts about the future, or the truth about tomorrow. Let's see what God has to say about our future. Now, before we get into the text, I want to mention just a couple of things. Uh, I mentioned the other night that revival can often be uh, can often be a subject propounded by a con. And I believe that. Now, that doesn't mean there's no such thing as revival. It just seems to be a a quick go-to for someone that wants to stir up God's people to something, though they don't clearly define it and they don't biblically define it. And so, it can sometimes be be a good go-to for a con. So can prophecy. So can prophecy. Now, that doesn't mean the Bible doesn't mention prophecy, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't discern prophecy and understand it from the Bible. We just need to discern it and understand it from the Bible, not, well, this guy's speaking on prophecy. Let me pause and say something. When anybody makes their entire ministry about nothing but prophecy, I'm a little suspicious. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't ever lead someone to do that, but there's more in the Bible than just prophecy, And I don't know that it's a fully balanced ministry to only talk about prophecy. Uh, When someone begins to use and name dates, you know that that person is either gotten off track or they've been off track from the get-go. And you can be rightly and correctly and biblically suspicious about that. Uh, there's a lot. Of, there are a lot of things that are happening right now. Someone sent me something today and said that the Chinese have now sent a couple of aircraft carriers into the Mediterranean. Well, that doesn't look good. Russia has some aircraft carriers that are in the Mediterranean. That doesn't look good. This thing looks like it could uh, be a tinderbox ready to explode at any moment. Uh, I also got something from someone just recently, and he said that uh, a member of the Israeli parliament sent to the rabbis in Jerusalem and said, we have some of the furniture that was taken out of, taken out of Jerusalem in the, in the rage of Titus. He said, it's time for you to come get it. Well, that's interesting. So what about all of these things that are happening? This world is not falling apart. Everything is falling in place. And I believe there needs to be a calm urgency about God's people. You say, a calm urgency? Yes. You can have peace and urgency at the same time. If you have God's peace, there needs to be an understanding that everything is falling in place. Now, when people talk about the end of the world, do you know usually when people talk like that, preachers, believers, non-believers... Usually, when they talk about that, I I get suspicious. You know why? If Jesus Christ came back in the next five minutes, and that's very possible. That's the next event on God's prophetic timetable, as we'll note in a moment. Do you know there would still be seven years of tribulation on this earth? That there would be the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. There would be the tribulation and the great tribulation upon this earth. At the end of those seven years, Jesus Christ comes back in Revelation chapter 19 on a white horse, does battle with the Antichrist, sets up his 1,000-year reign on this earth. So if Jesus Christ came back right now, there would still be 1,007 years left. So we still wouldn't be at the end. You need to keep that in mind. At the end of the thousand years, during which Satan is bound, according to Revelation chapter 19, he's loosed at the end of those those thousand years, think of it, a thousand years with no political elections. Somebody say amen right there. I mean, that'll be wonderful to not have to hear it all the time in a constant circle. It's just a constant barrage. But a thousand years with Jesus Christ reigning as the Prince of Peace in Jerusalem, healing the world from all that took place during the tribulation, Satan is bound. Still at the end of that thousand years, somehow he's able to rally a rebellion. That's one of the most astounding truths to me in all the Scripture. He rallies a rebellion, it's crushed by the Lord Jesus. He's cast into the lake of fire. God destroys this heaven and this this heaven and this earth. And he brings all the unbelievers before the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter number 20. And then he brings the new heaven and the new earth down from God out of heaven. And it's going to be all eternity with the Lord Jesus. Now, what a wonderful hope that is. What a wonderful calm that is. But you know what else it gives? An urgency. I ought to be urgent about my Christian life. I ought to be passionate about surrendering to the Lord and following the Lord and encouraging every other believer to do the same. Now, notice, please, our text, 2 2 2 Thessalonians 2. Would you 2 Thessalonians 2 in the scripture? The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2 Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. Now, I want us just to divide our thoughts into a few sections tonight, and I want us to see what God says about the future. First of all, I want you to notice He gives a reminder. A reminder. Would you say that with me tonight, please? A reminder. Good. Would you say it again, please? A reminder. Number one, He gives a reminder, and He says... Don't be troubled, don't be shaken, in verse number 2, don't be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. In other words, somehow people had crept in to the Thessalonican church, and they had begun to teach between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians that the day of Christ was at hand, that the end had come. Apparently, con artists were using that back then, and that they should be shaken in mind and spirit and be troubled. And he said, don't be shaken. Don't be troubled. Notice verse number one. He beseeches them by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Verse three says, let no man deceive you by any means. What was he saying? He was saying, here's the reminder. Jesus Christ has not yet come. The end has not yet begun. You should not be troubled And you should not be deceived. That was the reminder. Look at what he says in verse number five. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. So what is he doing? He's giving one reminder after another. Paul uses the phrase remember, remember, remember not often throughout his epistles. Because you know why? We easily forget we easily forget what the Lord taught us. We easily forget. Uh, sometimes we parents think that kids are the, the only ones that forget, and they wonder, "Did I speak it in English? Did I give it to them right? I told it to them five different times and five different ways, and somehow they still didn't get it. Why? Because we easily forget. Our minds are on something else. We're looking somewhere else." So he says, "Remember you not." Now we believe that First and Second Thessalonians are the the earliest of Paul's epistles. He was there in Thessalonica for three Sabbath days. Which which means he could have been there from anywhere from three weeks up to almost five weeks, and he was preaching from house to house and from place to place that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And he comes along here in 2 Thessalonians, and he says, Don't be troubled. It bothered him because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, I was caring for you like a nurse cares and cherisheth her children. I was caring for you like a father pities his own. And he loved those at Thessalonica. He loved that they had trusted Christ. He loved that they were going on for God. And he says, it's burdening me and bothering me now that you're troubled and that you're shaken in your mind. He said, don't be. He says, I'm beseeching you by the coming of our Lord Jesus, by our gathering together unto him, that you don't be shaken, that you don't be deceived. Now, he's giving them a reminder. And notice what he says in verse 2. He says, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. Watch now, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us. I want to put a parenthesis just right here and briefly mention how false doctrine comes. When I was growing up, I, I was in a church from fifth grade till I graduated from high school, a sound Bible-preaching church. They had a, a Bible institute. They had a seminary training people for ministry. And, and it was a solid church in the north, northern part of Minnesota. And, and somehow, somehow, a man began to teach in Sunday school that Jesus wasn't God. And I remember that. And I remember the day when they had a church discipline session, and they began to call him forward, and he would not renounce it, so he was disciplined out. How did that happen? Well, I want you to notice in a moment, he says that you be not soon shaken neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us. The way false doctrine comes is first through a spirit, through a mood, an attitude of questioning the Bible, and questioning the Word of God, and undermining the Scripture, And that's what happened between 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. He said that you be not shown shaken, neither be troubled neither by spirit nor by word. After a while, those who teach false doctrine and question God's word. Let me say, always put a question mark over anyone that puts a question mark over the Bible. Always. Always. There's nothing wrong with asking questions about the Bible, but there's something devious and dreadfully wrong with questioning the Bible. And so here, they began to question the Word of God, and then they began to actually verbalize their false teaching, neither by spirit, attitude, mood, or by, nor by word, they're actually verbalizing their lie. That's how the devil came. First he said, yea, hath God said. Then he said, ye shall not surely die. Then notice what he says in verse number two, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. In other words, somewhere between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, there was another letter written as if it were from Paul, signed as if it were from Paul. Now, we have a word for that in our modern day. It's called forgery. It's a criminal offense. You can go to jail for such a crime. And yet these false teachers were using forgery, I believe even smacking against the inspiration of Scripture by doing such a thing, and convincing believers that the day of Christ was at hand and they had something to worry about. Now, I'm not, I'm not a theologian. I don't pretend to be. I'm not a super scholar, but I'm kind of a practical person, a practical thinker. And one of the ways I test a doctrine is, does it create confidence or doubt? If it creates confidence in the Word of God, it's, it's right. If it creates doubt and fear, it's not right. God's Word creates confidence. So he says, this is my reminder. Jesus has not come. We've not been gathered unto him. The day of Christ is not at hand. You should not be troubled, and you should not be deceived. Notice what he says in verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. Let no man deceive you by any means. Now, how can you be, could you be deceived in, in, in Bible times? Well, you could be deceived by a written word. You could be deceived by a spoken word. And that's about it. You certainly could be caught up in a spirit of deception, a spirit of di- divination and, and deception. But, but mainly through a written word and a spoken word. How can you be deceived today? Well, you can be deceived through someone on the internet, some through some Facebook sensation, through some TV preacher, some radio preacher. And so God decided to sum it up for all time and eternity. He said, let no man deceive you by any means. Some years ago, we were in Delaware, and we were visiting my wife's grandmother, and I noticed on the TV or the TV table that there were two end-time apocalyptic videos. One was called The Tribulation, and the other was called The Omega Code. Is there anybody here that's ever seen or heard of those, The Omega Code or The Tribulation? Okay, a couple. And I I looked at my wife, and I said, honey, there are two end-time apocalyptic videos. Let's break out the popcorn and watch them. Now, for some reason, she didn't share my enthusiasm, but uh, we began to start the process. And as we did, as we did, my wife's grandmother, she scratched her head and she said, I think I'm going to have to watch that Omega Code several times before I understand it. I said, Grandma, never fear. I have been to Bible college. And I said, as this movie unfolds, I will give you blow by blow, play by play what is happening. So we watched the whole movie, and when we got done, I looked at her and scratched my head, and I said, I think I'm going to have to watch that several times before I begin to understand it. I mean, it was so mixed up and confusing, and a little bit of Scripture, and then a whole lot of no Scripture. It was just completely confusing. That's why he said, let no man deceive you by any means. Test everything, including what I say, and any preacher from the Bible. Notice what he says now, verse number three, for one. He says, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. You know what that is? Number 2. The rapture. The rapture. Would you say that please? The rapture. Would you say it again? The rapture. Now the word rapture is not found in the New Testament, but the concept is found in the whole Bible. Keep your finger here in 2 Thessalonians too quickly and turn over to 2 Peter. Would you check 2 Peter to the right if you're unfamiliar, 2 Peter chapter 2. You come to Revelation and work your way back to the left, and you'll be right there in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2. Listen to the Scripture, 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. It says, "...for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly." And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished." So watch. He's saying this in verses six through nine of Second Peter chapter two. Second Peter two six through nine. He says, "If the Lord knows how to deliver the." The godly out of temptation, like he delivered Noah, like he delivered Lot, and He reserves the unjust under the day of judgment, like He delivered the angels that sinned, like He delivered those in Noah's day, and like He delivered Sodom and Gomorrah, he'll do the same in he'll be, he'll do the same today, and he'll do the same in the end. Here's the principle of the rapture that's found all throughout the Bible. Before God sends judgment and has ever sent judgment, he does two things. Number one, he sends his prophets to warn. Number two, he rescues his own. Before God sent cataclysmic judgment upon the world of the ungodly in Noah's day, he sent Noah, a preacher of righteousness, to warn, and warn he did for 120 years. Before God sent judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, he sent his angels to warn, and warn they did. And then he rescues his own. He rescued the angels that obeyed. He judged the angels that disobeyed. He rescued Noah and his family as because they had trusted in God's way of salvation, and he re- brought, brought judgment upon the world. He rescued Lot and his his two daughters and his wife, a, and yet brought judgment upon the rest. Oh, why? Because Lot was was righteous. Lot was just, even though it doesn't look like anything could be the the truth in, in that regard. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, he calls him just and righteous, and he rescues his own. Listen, before God sends judgment, which will be the tribulation upon this wicked, wicked world, he sends his prophets to warn. Now, more than ever, in the church age, there's been preaching on the coming of Jesus Christ. I was talking to some preacher friends of mine today, and, and we were talking about now is when we need to preach on the coming of Jesus Christ. Now we need to preach clearly and plainly. I was preaching in Minnesota, and a, a, a man came to me and said that his pastor went to seminary, and, and the seminary professor said, You should never preach on prophecy. Well, that shows how much that seminary professor knows about anything. What a ridiculous notion! Why? why would you not preach on prophecy? Do you know one reason why we believe the Bible to be true is because of its prophetic nature? And there are multiplied numbers of prophecies that have already been fulfilled about countries, about people, about, uh, about the... For instance, when, when Balaam got up and prophesied, he prophesied and tried to prophesy judgment upon Israel and nothing came out but a blessing. And so he prophesied and Barak the king said, no, I don't want you to bless Israel. I want you to curse Israel. And Balaam said, I'm trying. I'm really trying. He said, let's try it from a different vantage point. So he opened his mouth, tried to bless or curse Israel. Nothing came out but a blessing. Barak said, no, 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 no. I'm paying you the big bucks to curse Israel. He said, I'm trying. So he went to another place and he opened his mouth to bring out a curse. Nothing came out but a blessing. And Barak said, I'm going to Donald trump you. You're fired. And so he got him out of there. And it looks like Balaam just rides off into the sunset but no, no, no. Balaam later you find actually said, I've got an idea. Maybe we can send the Midianite women in to commit adultery with the Israelite men and invite the judgment of God that way. And Barak said, do you think it'll work? And sure enough, it did. But do you know what Barak did in the middle of all that, Balaam? He pronounced a judgment upon the people called the Amalekites. You do a study on the Amalekites. They're the Old Testament terrorists. They attacked the women and the children and the old people. And God said when they did, he said, you do battle against them. And when they got done with that battle, he said, you write that battle down in a book and you rehearse it in the ears of the people. He said, someday I'll wipe out Amalek, completely wipe them out. And just like Balaam's prophecy was made, Balaam's prophecy was fulfilled. There are prophecies concerning people, cities, nations that came to pass. There's a prophecy, many prophecies concerning Christ's first coming, where he would be born, that he would be born of a virgin, uh, how he would be born, when he would be born, that he would be born and live in obscurity, and that he would be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. Then prophecies concerning his righteousness, that he would be perfect, prophecies concerning his death, that he would be pierced, prophecies concerning that his bones would be pulled out of joint when he died, prophecies that he would hang on a tree, prophecies concerning his resurrection, and they were all fulfilled to a T. But do you know that for every one time, for every one time there is a message concerning Christ's first coming, there's three times that many prophecies concerning his second coming. So why wouldn't we preach about it? Turn back to the Thessalonians, would you? See what the Bible says about the rapture in just the Thessalonians alone. First Thessalonians, please, chapter number 1 and verse number 9. It says, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Look at First Thessalonians 2. Notice verse number 19 and 20. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For ye are our glory and joy. First Thessalonians 3, verse 13. First Thessalonians 3, verse 13. He says, "...to the end He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints." First Thessalonians 4, this is a classic passage, verse 13, First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord wherefore comfort one another with these words look at what he says in First Thessalonians 5 and verse 23 First Thessalonians 5 and verse 23 and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be are blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen carefully. First Thessalonians in these references primarily deals with the first aspect of Christ's second coming. Second Thessalonians primarily deals with the second aspect of Christ's second coming. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Sometimes people confuse the rapture with the revelation. The rapture is the next event. Jesus comes in the clouds. He comes for his saints. He comes secretly as a thief in the night. The revelation, seven years later, he comes with his saints. Every eye shall see him. He doesn't come in the clouds. He comes to this earth. And there's a difference. Don't confuse the two. Now, there are some portions of Matthew 24 that seem like it's the rapture, but it's the revelation. Matthew 24 was written to the Jew, and he's speaking there not of being taken in the rapture. He's talking about being taken in judgment. Don't confuse Matthew 24 and put the church in there. You'll have all kinds of theological gymnastics you'll have to do. So watch, ladies and gentlemen, you need to understand how how the Lord gives his word. Notice 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1, again, this primarily is the second aspect of Christ's second coming. Verse 7, to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. And 2 Thessalonians 2 is primarily dealing with uh, the first aspect of Christ's second coming all the way to 2 Thessalonians uh, 2 and verse number 12, the second aspect of Christ's second coming, the revelation. All right, now watch. Number one is a reminder Jesus hasn't come. When he comes, all the Christians will be caught up. That's the rapture. Number three is the reckoning. The reckoning. Would you say that with me? The reckoning. Would you say it again? The reckoning. Reckoning. Now, this is not referenced in 2 Thessalonians, but I will give you references to look up and study later. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Romans 14. Romans 14. 1 or 2 Timothy chapter 2. All of these refer in some form or another to the reckoning. You say, preacher, what do you mean? All right, let me ask you a question. As soon as the rapture happens, let's say it happens before the service ends tonight. As soon as the rapture happens, what will you be doing? Well, you say, preacher, as far as I understand Scripture, I'll be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds, and I'll be kicking up gold dust, and I'll be running up and down the streets of Glory Avenue and throwing my arms around the necks of those who've gone before. No, you won't. You say, I won't? No, you won't. You say, where will you be? You will be with every other believer, listen carefully, bowing at the nail-pierced feet of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Immediately following the rapture, there will be what's called the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. And Paul said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every man may receive the things that are done in his body, whether they be good or bad. He said, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now listen, at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be judged for our works. Watch it. From the moment we got saved till the moment we see Jesus. We will not be condemned for our sin because that took place at the cross. Jesus was made a curse for us, but we will be judged for our works, whether they were good or bad. You say, well, what determines whether they were good or bad? All right, it's, 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 it's as if you each day are given two pallets to choose from, the flesh or the spirit. And you will build your house with wood, hay, and stubble from the flesh, in the power of the flesh, for the glory of self, or you build from gold, silver, precious stones, that's the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see? Every moment, every choice, every attitude, every action is either building from the flesh palette or from the spirit palette, from the wood, hay, stubble pallet, or from the gold, silver, precious stones palette. And when Jesus Christ looks down on my works, according to 1 Corinthians chapter number 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, my works will burn up and only what's done from the gold, silver, precious stone palette will last. Now, I used to think that the judgment seat of Christ would be something like this, that the day of reckoning would be my house that I had built with my Christian life and my choices and my actions and attitudes and words, and it would come before the Lord on a great big conveyor belt. You didn't know they had conveyor belts in heaven. And I thought that it would come before the Lord in a great big conveyor belt. He would look down at my works. It would all burn up, and only the gold, silver, precious stones would last. But do you know when I studied the context of 1 Corinthians 3, I don't think that's so. Because in the context, woven into the context, he talks about, he talks about the, the pride of following Paul or Apollos. And then he talks about building not on another man's foundation. Then he talks about being laborers together with God. And I think it's going to be a lot more like this. He's going to say, on that day, he's going to say, Brother Dwight, I expected you to build uh, and to, to put in the floors of the kingdom of God. He's going to say, Pastor Pittman, I expected you to put up the walls in the kingdom of God. He's going to say, Brother Scott, I expected you to put in the lighting in the kingdom of God. He's going to say, Brother Andrew, I expected you to put down the carpet in the kingdom of God. He's going to say, Brother Alexander, I expected you to put in the trim in the kingdom of God. And on that day, I am going to see how my work for Christ, either good or bad, either hindered or advanced Christ's cause. And I believe for that reason, more than any other, I will weep at the judgment seat of Christ. It was much like when I wrestled the last two years of high school. We worked as a team. We trained as a team. We wrestled together as a team. And when we got out there on the mat, we were all by ourselves against the opponent. But what I did up to that point and on the mat either hindered or advanced the whole team score. Do you see? And I think that we think our carnality only affects us. And we think that living, missing out on church and living for ourselves, and, and trading, uh, serving God with, 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 with all these other sporting activities or whatever, or making money instead of investing our money in the kingdom of God, it doesn't really matter. It's not that big a deal. God's just going to look the other way. Oh, No. Oh, no, there's going to be a reckoning come judgment day. That's why A.W. Tozer said there should be two days on our calendar, today and that day. I want to ask, are you living for eternity or are you living for the here and now? Are you living for what is unseen or are you living for what is seen? Are you living for the future or are you living for the moment Oh, I wish that I could somehow plead with every Christian in this nation and every Christian in this church to stop looking at the things that are seen and lift your eyes on the fields they are white already unto harvest. I wish that somehow we could live every day consumed with eternity instead of consumed with flesh, satisfying ourselves in the moment and thinking that's all there is to life. There's going to be the day of reckoning. Quickly, back to our text, 2 Thessalonians 2. Would you notice? 2 Thessalonians 2, notice what he says, verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed. Number four, I want you to notice there is a rebellion. A rebellion. Would you say that with me tonight? A rebellion. Would you say it again? A rebellion. Number four, there is a rebellion. Now, when he speaks here of the falling away, some Bible students reference that or use that to reference the rapture. Listen carefully. I'm not going to cross swords with them. Many of them are good brothers. But I believe those two English words are not referencing the rapture. There are plenty of other good passages to support that. These two English words, falling away, come from one root word, which is where we get our word apostasy. Listen carefully. There are some older saints in this place who remember when right here in America, it was required in the public school to memorize the Lord's Prayer, the 23rd Psalm, the Ten Commandments. How many of you remember that? That wasn't that long ago. Is it required to memorize the Lord's Prayer, the 23rd Psalm, and the Ten Commandments now in the public school? No, you're required not to. How could that happen in just a matter of 50 years? How could that happen? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it happened slowly and subtly, and then all of a sudden, suddenly. But ladies and gentlemen, it happened because as we near the coming of the Lord Jesus... There is a growing chorus of rebellion amongst those that have rejected the cross and rejected Jesus as the only hope for salvation. And they sing with those in Luke, we will not have this man Jesus to rule over us. How is it that you can pray in the name of any God you want to except the God Jesus Christ? When you pray in his name in some public forum, it creates a firestorm or a lawsuit. How is that? It's because there's a growing rebellion. Watch it, happens in part before the rapture, but folks, it explodes in full after the rapture. Look at our text, verse number four. uh, Verse four says, Who, speaking of the Antichrist, opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth. Something is withholding the spirit of Antichrist. Now, you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. Hear it, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let. The word letteth means to hinder. He who now hindereth will let, will hinder until he be taken out of the way. Now, what is that? That's the supernatural hindering work of the Holy Spirit through his special indwelling presence. And ladies and gentlemen, he who now hinders will hinder. Why is it that there isn't a pub and a bar and a striptease joint and godlessness on every single corner of this world? I'll tell you why. Because of the supernatural hindering work of the Holy Spirit through the indwelling believer. We stand against it, and rightly so. We withstand it, and rightly so. We want to to see our community safe from all this inroads of evil and from all this encroaching evil. We want to see our children safe, and we're trying to fight it and stand against it politically and socially and in every way, and so so we should. But folks, watch this. When the rapture happens, every believer will be gone like that. Faster than you can blink your eye, faster than the sun glistens on your eye, the twinkling of an eye, and a moment in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. It will happen so suddenly, the world won't know what happened, and they won't know how to explain it. They'll come up with every kind of cockamamie explanation you can imagine. I used to think that they would just say, well, the the invading Martians and the invading aliens came and got them. After the last election, I kind of had the idea that they might just say, oh, what are you talking about, disappearances? There's nothing to see here. And just ignore it. But folks, I want you to understand that the rebellion after the rapture will be like anything this world has ever seen. Watch. When Noah stepped out of the ark, it was one of the one time on the earth, one of the few times where there were only believers on the earth. When the rapture happens, it will be the one time on the earth where there will only be unbelievers present. And it will cause a vacuum to take place where assets are seized, where houses are occupied, where buildings are taken over, and evil will come in like a flood after the rapture. Watch the rebellion happens in part before the rapture. Now, I'm not for rebellion. I think that we should be salt and light and stand against rebellion, but folks, as this happens and all of this takes place, no, it's just just pointing to the soon return of the Lord Jesus. And when he comes, we'll be gone, and hear it, there will be nothing withstanding evil. Nothing. Look at our text. I want you to notice number five, the revelation. Verse number three says, Except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. In other words, that day, which day? The day of Christ mentioned in verse number one and two. That day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So there's a rebellion that happens in part, and the rapture, and then it happens in full, and the man of sin is revealed. Who's the man of sin? Antichrist. Now, 1 John tells us that there are Antichrists in the world right now, and that the spirit of Antichrist is in the world right now. The church of Satan believes that the Antichrist is alive right now. And I believe that because Satan is not omniscient, that means he does not know everything, he has always had to have someone that could step into that role, and so you can see evil actors all throughout eternity. But when Antichrist comes to power, he will come seemingly out of nowhere. And when he comes to power, he will say, he will step upon the world scene, and he will seize the day. You say, how? Three ways. He'll seize the political system and get the Jews and the Arabs to sign a peace treaty. That doesn't seem possible right now, does it? But he will. And when he does, the world will say, how did he get that accomplished? How did that happen? In fact, it may go from a place of major war between those two people groups, the Jewish people and the Arabs, to all of a sudden complete peace. Everybody puts down their weapons. And if that does, the people say, who just did that? And we want him to be our leader. Madeleine Albright wasn't able to accomplish it. Colin Powell didn't accomplish it. Hillary Clinton didn't accomplish it. Mike Pompeo didn't accomplish it. How could he accomplish it? Well, because he has satanic power backing him. He's going to seize the political system. He'll seize the economic system and make it so that according to Revelation, you will not be able to buy or sell unless you have a mark in your right hand or your forehead. Now, we don't know if this is the microchip or the biochip, but it sure makes us wonder And I think people have been marking their bodies so much more so and so much more intently over the last few decades that it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to mark your body or to get some kind of computer chip inserted that you could scan under the scanner and all your banking information would just debit something out of your bank at the grocery store. You could scan something and all your medical information is there. It would save a whole lot of time. So you get a mark. He seizes the economic system with the mark. He seizes the religious system with his, anti, with his false prophet, and he, the false prophet, brings all the religions under a one-world umbrella. Listen carefully. That will not be difficult. There is great pressure right now to get all the religions to work together, and that's why you have so much an emphasis on diversity and inclusion and the United Nations and the like. But watch think of the pieces that, have, that, that, that are part of this puzzle. First, the rapture happens, and all the real believers are gone, gone. They're not going to oppose anything because they're gone. <laughs> There's nothing to oppose evil. Then you have what is a shell of Christianity or what calls itself Christianity wondering what just happened, looking for explanation, looking for a leader, Then you have the dear Jewish people who rejected Jesus as their Messiah, so they're still looking for a Messiah. Then you have the Muslims, many of whom are looking for the 12th Imam, they're looking for a leader. Then you have the Hindus, they're still looking for a final prophet. And all of this comes together, and if the person is an atheist, they're just looking for somebody to give them some kind of a solution because they don't really care about God. And here comes the false prophet, and here comes the Antichrist, and he steps into those shoes. Wow. This is the revelation of Antichrist. But let me say something. God never encourages Christians in the New Testament to look for the Antichrist. You say, do you know who he is? No, I don't. And neither do you. And neither does anybody else. And it doesn't matter to me who he is, because I'm looking for Jesus Christ. I'm looking for him. I want him to be pleased. And when the Antichrist is in power, he can have it as far as I'm concerned, and he can enjoy the leadership of the whole world, where the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of England and the kings and queens of the earth fall and bow at his feet. He can have it. He's only going to have it for seven years, not even two full presidential terms. He can have it for as long as he wants. He's only going to get it for seven years, and I'm not going to be around here anyway. So watch here, watch what's the Bible saying there's the revelation of Antichrist now watch this, we have the reminder Jesus has not come when he comes, there will be the rapture. He'll come in the clouds and rapture all of his saints up to be with him. Number three, there is, the re- there is the reckoning. All the believers in heaven will be bowing at the judgment seat and giving an account. Then on the earth, there is a rebellion. It happens in part before the rapture, happens in full after the rapture. After that, it all of a sudden reveals the Antichrist. There's the revelation. Now, I want you to notice number six and finally, the reality. The reality. Would you say it with me? The Reality. Look at our text, verse number 7. It says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here's my question. Listen carefully. If a person has heard the gospel before the rapture and understood it and rejected it by saying no or not now, will they be saved after the rapture? I don't believe so. You say, wait a second, preacher. I thought millions would be saved during the tribulation. Millions will be saved. There will be two preachers that will be brought back from eternity. They'll be brought back from heaven. They'll stand there in the streets of Jerusalem and they'll preach for three and a half years. And when people try to kill them, they will be destroyed. And those two preachers will preach, and as a result, there will be 144,000 male Jewish virgin converts, not Jehovah's Witnesses. And they will spread across the globe, and they will preach the gospel like at no other time before, and millions will be saved. But will any of those saved during the tribulation and after the rapture be those who before the rapture heard the gospel, understood it, and rejected it by saying no or not now not according to verses 10 11 and 12 look at what it says with he comes satan does and the antichrist with power signs lying wonders verse 9 verse 10 with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish answer are those that perish saved or unsaved saved or unsaved unsaved he says them that perish he says because they received not is that past present or future tense past tense So somewhere in the past, they received not the truth. So when the Antichrist comes with power, signs, lying wonders, and with the deceivableness of unrighteousness, the delusion comes, they receive the mark, they worship the Antichrist, and they do not get saved. Now, I'm not talking about someone who hears a gospel radio preacher for about five minutes and says, "Ah, I've had enough of that. I'm not talking about someone who receives a gospel track, stuffs it in their pocket, and it turns up in the wash. I'm not talking about that. I'm not even talking about someone who lives in this town and goes to a dead, lifeless church that doesn't even preach the gospel and has never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who may be here tonight who has never, by faith, received God's gift of eternal life. And you know that you're lost because any honest person has no problem admitting they're lost in their sin. You know that because of your sin, you deserve judgment because every reasonable person has no problem admitting that sin deserves a consequence. And you know that Jesus Christ died. You've heard Pastor Pittman preach, you've heard your friend who invited you. Tell it. You've heard this little blonde headed midget preach. You've heard all every different way from Sunday how to be saved. That through Jesus Christ dying on the cross, shedding his precious blood, being buried, and rising again from the grave, alone, through that alone, you can have salvation. No other way. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And you say, I don't have to listen to that guy. He was a little overworked and hyper anyway. And you walk out the doors of this auditorium and you go to your your car, and just as you're about to open your door, the rapture happens. And you look around, and people that were walking shoulder to shoulder with you are gone. And you look in the church, and all the lights are on, and there's just a few dazed people and cars filling the parking lot. And you go back in, and everybody's just about, everybody's gone. And you say, what? And you had the opportunity to be saved and you had the chance to believe on Christ, and you said, I'll do it someday, or forget it, I don't need to listen to that guy from North Carolina, you'll receive the mark. You'll believe the lie. You'll worship the image of the Antichrist, and your doom will be sealed. My friend, that is reality. Reality. And I will say, if I were here tonight lost, undone, and not sure where I was headed when I died, not all the men in this church could keep me from coming to Jesus. I would get it settled tonight before I left this building. My friends, that is the truth about tomorrow. Would you bow with me in prayer? Your heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Thank you for listening so intently to the Bible. I wonder with your heads bowed and your eyes closed if you'd say, Brother Smith, I know that I'm saved, but as you've been preaching tonight, the Holy Spirit has reminded me that someday I'm going to stand at the judgment seat, and I'm afraid there'd be more wood hay stubble than there would be gold, silver, precious stones. I need to ask the Lord to forgive me of my carnality and my selfish choices and my living for the moment instead of living for eternity. Would you pray for me as a Christian? I need to get right with God. Yes, I will. If that's you, would you slip up your hand right now? God bless you. Several. Good. Thank you for this. Thank you. Anyone else? Slip up your hand. Put it right back down. Let me remember you in prayer. Thank you. Question number two. I wonder if you'd say, preacher, as a Christian, I'm burdened that, that I... I'm burdened that I've not been reaching out to the lost. And there are lost people around me on a daily basis that I see and work with and rub shoulders with. And you say, preacher, I've got to reach them before all of this unfolds. Would you pray for me that I would be effective and urgent with a peace that passes all understanding, reaching lost folks for Christ? If that's you, would you slip up your hand right now? Many thank God for this. Question number three, how many of you can say tonight, Brother Smith, this message does not grip me with fear. This message gives me a peace and a calm because I've settled my eternal destiny. I know that if I died today, I'd go to heaven. I've accepted God's gift of eternal life. Now, if you don't know that and you haven't done that, it won't matter at all if you raise your hand. But if you say, preacher, I know that I've trusted Christ as my Savior. And if he came in five minutes, I know that I'd go to be with him. Would you slip your hand up as a testimony to that fact? Preacher, I know. I know that I'm saved and on my way to heaven. Thank you. May put your hands down. I wonder if you're here this evening and you could not raise your hand. You said, Brother Smith, I don't know. I'm not sure if Jesus came tonight that I'd go to be with him. But I need to know And I want to know, and I don't want to wait any longer. I want to get it settled. If that's you, would you slip up your hand tonight? Is there anybody here like that preacher? I don't know if Christ came tonight that I'd go to be with him, but I need to know, and I want to know, would you pray for me? Just slip up your hand right now. In a moment, I'll see it, and I'll remember you in prayer. Anyone? Anyone? Preacher, pray for me. All right, let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, I pray that we as Christians would live in such a way That when we stand before you on judgment day at the judgment seat, we'd hear well done. Help us to realize carnality and worldliness will not bring that outcome. Help us to live for eternity and live in the power of the Spirit and for the glory of Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here that's lost and they've never been saved, I pray that tonight they would call upon Jesus and they would ask Him to be their Lord and Savior. We ask it all in Jesus' name.